The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today we're speaking with Judson Brewer, who is the Director of Research at the Center for Mindfulness and Associate Professor in Medicine and Psychiatry at UMass Medical School. He is the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. Judson, welcome to the show. Mm, Thanks for having me. So what inspired you to write this book? (laughs) <laughs> my own suffering and the suffering of many that I've treated in my clinic and others. Um, so, I mean, you're talking about craving, so I'm guessing we're talking about addiction. What, what, what is addiction? What is that? You know, I, I like a very simple definition uh, and one that I learned back in residency training. It's called, uh, the definition is, continued use despite adverse consequences. And it just seems to cover so much. Uh, so whether it's chemical addictions, you know, alcohol, cocaine, heroin, or even uh, some other modern day addictions such as smartphone use. Well, in, in your book, you start with talking about cigarettes, which I think is one of the hardest things to quit. Am I right? Yes. And, uh, um, what do you do to help people recognize even that they have an addiction? <laughs> there's a there's a great technique uh, that's used in uh, in psychiatry and psychology called uh, motivational interviewing. It's basically asking this question, you know, uh, if you're smoking, well, why don't you smoke more? <laughs> and uh, people, they tend to, in my clinic, they look at me like I'm crazy. Uh, but that that really provokes where people might have a natural tendency to say, you know, wait, this isn't this is problematic for me because uh, sometimes it's really hard to see if if we've been so habituated to a certain behavior. So I, I think really helping people see very clearly how something is affecting their life, you know, that adverse consequences piece uh, is a, is a good place for me to start at least. So we're looking at anything that's having an adverse effect on our lives. Pretty much any behavior can fall into that simple definition of addiction in that way, yes. Okay. And in in your book, you talk about a trigger behavioral reward habit. What's that? Uh, That's basically how our brains learn. Uh, so from a very basic standpoint, uh, this system was probably set up so we'd remember where food is. So it, a trigger might be that we see some berries on a bush or something. Uh, and then the behavior is that we eat the berries. And then our reward, uh, it comes in the form of dopamine getting spritzed under our brain, uh, sent via a signal that says, hey, these are calories. And so our brain says, oh, wow, calories, survival, this is good. So that trigger behavior reward loops get set up so we'd remember where that food is and we'd remember where to come come find that again. Uh, in modern day, it's a little bit different because food is plentiful, at least in the Western world. And the same learning loop, you know, reward-based learning is at play. So, you know, we might get stressed out and our brain says, hey, why don't you eat something and you'll feel better? And so we do. And then we set up this stress-eating habit loop when we're not even hungry. I think that uh, we can all relate to this. I mean, even when we're just looking at food, um, you know, there's comfort food, which is called that for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we reach for that when we're stressed and we reach for that when we're happy. And and um, when is the line between, 
you know, celebratory into addiction? How do we recognize that? Yeah, it can be a really tricky line to draw or even find. Uh, this is where, you know, the adverse consequences comes in. So, you know, it, it can be as simple as um, somebody noticing that they're, you know, they're gaining weight and they're not sure what's happening uh, because they haven't noticed all the times when they've been stress eating, for example. Or it could be, you know, more just talking about food. Um, the extreme end of that is binge eating disorder where, you know, people are eating and binging on food in a way that's completely out of control. So um, you talked about dopamine and how does that play a role? Dopamine is one of the uh, core neurochemicals of the brain and it is uh, at the tail end and it's a critical part of the um, reward-based learning uh, circuitry. So it gets spritzed onto the nucleus accumbens in the brain from the ventral tegmental area and basically is there to help us um, learn and also start to anticipate uh, reward in the future. It gets activated with any drug of abuse. So if we smoke cigarettes, if we drink alcohol, if we use heroin, all of those activate dopamine uh, in the nucleus accumbens. But in, interestingly, uh, studies have now shown that uh, look, getting a bunch of likes on Facebook also activates uh, these same dopaminergic systems or... Um, you know, talking about ourselves. So there, this reward-based learning, this addictive habit loop seems to be um, pretty ubiquitous. So um, if we're getting a high from these things, um, is withdrawal basically just that we're not getting that dopamine response anymore? I, well, that's a complicated question. It depends on if we become physiologically dependent on a certain uh, drug. So, for example, alcohol, we get physical withdrawal uh, as well as psychological withdrawal. Um, with Facebook, uh, we, there's no physical, um, you know, physical addiction or um, physiologic change that happens physically from, uh, from looking at, a, you know, going to our Facebook feed. But we can certainly feel that psychological withdrawal. So, um, I mean, one thing I've heard people say to me over time and, and is that, you know, forgetting this dopamine high isn't what we're doing good for us. <laughs> well, dopamine <laughs> isn't set up as a here's the moralistic good thing. <laughs> you know, <if> dopamine <laughs> equals good. It's just set up so we'd remember where things are. So it's, um, it's a pretty binary thing in that sense, and I would say it's easily hijacked as we're, you know, we see from everything from, you know, Twitter to Facebook to alcohol to cigarettes. I, you know, we could go on and on and on. Well, and, and I guess the, the line would be, um, as you said before, if it's starting to cause um, destructive behavior or interfering in our lives in some way. Yes. Yeah, adverse yeah. consequences is really the key here, you know. So, so uh, talking about ourselves might be helpful if we're in therapy with our therapist, for example. It might be less helpful if we're dominating a com conversation and, and being perceived as narcissistic. Um, so what, what are, um, you talk about craving triggers what, in your book. What is that? Uh, triggers can be any environmental cues. They can even be internal cues. So if we hear something, see something, smell something, or even think something, uh, these can trigger cravings uh, that then lead us to, uh, to the behaviors that say, you know, get more of that or get away from that. Uh, a simple trigger could be uh, seeing somebody smoke a cigarette for somebody who smokes. They could get triggered. And then suddenly where they weren't craving a cigarette a second before now, have this huge craving and and really uh, feel like they've got to smoke. Okay, and is there a way to control those? <laughs> There's not much of a way to control our our environment, including the thoughts that we have. Um, so the key is working downstream from there, is being able to manage the cravings rather than trying to control the triggers. Well, that that makes sense because we can't live in a padded room <laughs> without right. without stress and and all of those things. So we have to work on that in a different way for sure. So you mentioned uh, addiction to te technology. Can you explain what that is? 
Well, it's interesting that we've never had these little devices that um, you can think of them as uh, weapons of mass distraction, (laughs) as somebody put it. Um, We've never had those before. And so never before have we had the ability to distract ourselves at any one moment. And so it's really interesting where not only uh, children, but even adults are are walking around and anytime they feel anxious, bored, nervous, whatever, they have the opportunity to pull out their phone and distract themselves by checking their newsfeed or doing whatever on their phone. So there are these components where uh, the technology is just kind of set up sometimes naturalistically and sometimes on purpose to be very sticky, you know. So um, the ubiquitous nature is helpful, that it's always available. Uh, the fact that we can do a lot of self-referential things on our phones makes them sticky. So we can post you know, things that we think are funny. We can post YouTube videos. We can post Twitter quotes. We can do all these things that are self-referential, which have also been shown to activate uh, the reward systems of the brain. Uh, we can go on Facebook to uh, kind of be voyeurists on you know what other people's lives are like, and that also is kind of addicted. There are a bunch of different qualities that all come together, and then you bring those together with the intermittent reinforcement piece, which is like we don't know when we're going to get the next text, and that is the same formula that the uh, casinos use as a way to get people to play the slot machines. You never know when you're going to win, but you win enough to keep losing. Uh, so there's a, this intermittent reinforcement quality to texting and emails, et cetera, that can also make this very sticky. Well, you know, I, I can um, I definitely relate to it. I mean, I think that we all can unless we don't have a smartphone. It, it's also convenient. I mean, I used to carry a book around with me, but it, it's heavy. So if I'm sitting waiting somewhere, I just take my phone out just out of convenience. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, you're kind of stuck in that. Um, everything's fast and different. You're not you're not settling into something. Absolutely, and this isn't to say that technology is bad. I don't think I'd be able to live without my cell phone. Um, But if we bring uh, conscious awareness to each of these actions, we can actually choose, oh, am I going to check uh, my email because I need to, or am I checking it because I'm bored? If I check it because I need to, then it's, it's doing something that is, you know, hopefully part of my productive day. But if I'm checking it out of boredom, I'm training myself when I'm bored, I should check my email to distract myself, which uh, puts me in the position of not being, not learning how to tolerate my own boredom. And that's, that's the real travesty here. Well, and, you know, there's a, a quote that I, I saw the other day that said one of the best things you can do for your kids is let them be bored. <laughs> yes, I love that. <laughs> the necessity being the mother of invention, because they'll go and play and they'll figure stuff out. Kids are great at being curious. Instead of setting them in front of a TV so that they can't um, think for themselves and figure things out and explore. Yes, yes. Yeah. So how do we um, recognize the the addiction to technology. I think it's about as complicated as food. Although, like you said, with food, you can see yourself you're you're gaining weight because your comfort food or something like that. But with technology, I, I mean, it's a little bit different because we need some. And you said, oh, don't check things when you're bored. But I, I, I mean, I th- I think some of it might be a little more convoluted on those lines as well because it's a little bit social, especially for the younger generations. It's a big part of their culture. So how can they recognize that um, they've gone overboard by and also stay it within their culture yeah I see it here I think it's a great question and I think we can bring it back to the adverse consequences we can look to see you know how connected do kids feel uh, and and have conversations about this not not just texting each other about how do you feel um, <laughs> And even, you know, exploring the issues and seeing, you know, okay, when you are on your phone, uh, do you feel more connected with the person that's across the table that you're texting to or less connected? You know, um, is there an adverse consequence to uh, being hyper, you know, hyper engaged in the phone that is preventing us from 
you know, actually reading facial expression, from learning uh, body cues, from having a, a really deep interaction with others. You know, there's a, a book written by Sherry Turkle called Alone Together, uh, which talks about, you know, we're more connected than ever, but we're more disconnected even through our connection. And so that's the piece that we can explore. It's not, you know, it's to say, okay, this is part of a culture and which parts of the culture are actually you know, not helpful versus, versus helpful. And just as a, as a concrete example, uh, never before have we had the ability to quantify um, feedback before so easily. So, you know, you post a picture on Facebook and you know exactly how many likes you got. That's completely quantifiable. So the brain starts learning, oh, you know, 50 is good, 25 is bad. Never had that before. If you, you showed your friend a picture, and they would describe, and you would have an interaction around that. So I think there's a lot here that, we, that can be explored around the different aspects of culture and how they might be influencing our relationality with each other. Well, and I, I think also with the, a lot of the social medias, people that you haven't seen for years can know a, b- a bunch of stuff about you, but you never get together because you feel like you know stuff or you're just not connected with each other, which seem, seems weird to me because we should um, either be connected or, or not. <laughs> it's just, the technology part is so weird that we know the stuff about each other, but we don't know each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. It's like, well, why should we get together? Yeah, what what would there be to talk about? Yeah, oh, we might actually your, talk. I know, and I know all your stuff. So, <laughs> you know, why have that interaction? Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Judson Brewer. Um, we're discussing his book, The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. We'll be back shortly. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually, as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Riss. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. 
Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Judson Brewer. He's the author of The Craving Mind. Uh, Judson, before the break, we talked about um, social media and addiction to te- technology, and, and you brought up, um, I think you said self-referential and, and um, kind of thinking of people dominating conversations. Can you talk about what that means? Well, self-reference basically means, you know, talking about ourselves. And um, there's some good studies now showing that talking about ourselves is, is activates the same dopamine systems as drugs of abuse. Well, that's interesting. So, <laughs> um, so what does that that mean for us? So, if we talk about ourselves, we get that dopamine response, and then we're becoming addicted to ourselves. Well, it, it, one way that people can really uh, explore this experientially is, you know, if you've ever posted something on Facebook and you've been waiting, anticipating for those um, those likes and those comments, that anticipation is uh, probably is I'm not going to say it's exactly the same as somebody anticipating drugs or the use of drugs, but it's it's very much that same feeling. So there's that anticipatory quality, and then there's that, oh, wow, somebody, I got 50 likes, um, that is this, like, jolt of excitement. Uh, so it, it's very much, you know, experientially, uh, you know, that dopamine hit that comes whether we're getting likes on Facebook or whether we're smoking a cigarette or, or using cocaine is, is really not that different. We don't have that many neurochemicals in our brain. So the... The younger generation coming up that are all over social media, I mean, this is such a big part of what they do. We talked about this earlier. It's such a big part of their culture. So um, they're, basically there's an addiction to how they're communicating with each other. Am I understanding that right? Be, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, when... When people are um, addicted to these things, how does this relate to depression? It's a great question. So I, there are some overlapping qualities, and obviously depression, especially you know the biologically driven depression, is its own kind of it has its own category. But one thing that is similar is uh, rumination. So if somebody is depressed and they're just ruminating about how terrible they are or how terrible they feel or how bad the world is or whatever, um, that can become its own kind of habit loop in itself. So they might um, have a thought that says, oh, you know, today's going to suck, and then they feel depressed. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the quote-unquote reward um, that then starts feeding back on itself. So they feel depressed, and then they have more depressed thoughts, and then they feel more depressed, and it just goes on and on and on. Well, it's interesting that uh, rumination, whether it's depression or anxiety, has been shown to activate brain regions um, that also get activated um, with uh, craving, when we're craving drugs. Uh, one in particular called the posterior cingulate cortex, which is part of a self-referential uh, brain network. So uh, you mentioned a study in your book, actually, where you exposed um, people who were depressed and people who weren't to positive and negative things. What was the outcome of that? Yeah, there was a study. I think this was a study done at Yale. I didn't do it myself. Um, but there, they wanted to see uh, what people with depression actually leaned toward. And it was interesting because, you know, they gave them options to look at happy pictures, sad pictures. They chose the sad pictures. Happy music, sad music, picked sad music. And they even were given cognitive strategies to make themselves um, feel better or feel worse. And they chose the ones that made themselves feel worse. So what they concluded was that the, you know, that mindset was something that they knew well. It was something that they were familiar with. And so that, you know, you think of, of the concept of, oh, I'm a depressed person as a familiar state. Whenever we move out of that state, just change can be uncomfortable itself. And so some people may be more likely to um, stay in that depressed state or even pick things that will keep them there because that familiarity feels more comfortable than stepping out of that. They're moving staying in their comfort zone, if you think of it that way, as depression as a comfort zone. 
it also it sounds like they're addicted to it as well yeah i it, here's where it you could say they're addicted to it. You could say it's a habit loop. That that habit loop is the same type of, you know, on an extreme end is addiction. Um, I'm not sure I would go as far as a psychiatrist saying that somebody who's depressed is addicted to being depressed. But I would say that the rumination feeds the depression itself, certainly. And in that sense, mm-hmm. it's, you know, continuing to the adverse consequences and contributing to them. Uh, it, it certainly sounds like it. So um, if we're wanting to come out of, well, it sounds like the depression can feed the addiction as well, because if we're comfort eating or drinking or whatever distraction, um, we're going to use those to, to to feed how we're feeling if we feel that way. Yeah, absolutely. And as an addiction psychiatrist, I see probably more people with comorbid like depression and anxiety with their addiction disorders than people, you know, just with a straight up uh, chemical addiction. Those are very, very highly comorbid. Um, yeah, it, it definitely makes sense. I mean, most of the time when people talk about addictions, they talk about getting to the root cause as well, which could be the the depression or or whatever else is going on. Yes. What does it mean to be addicted to love? <laughs> well, I can certainly tell you what it was like for me, um, but it basically felt like I was high on drugs. Uh, and, you know, I wrote an entire chapter on my book on this because I, it was <laughs> years later when I realized it. You know, I was basically, um, you know, on this big dopamine fest in college, um, you know, dating and, you know, even to the point where, um, you know, I had done this grand proposal to um, to my girlfriend in college and had set up all of these, you know, different, this, this whole elaborate network that was going to end up in me proposing to her at the top of some tower. And I, I realized when I was writing this book, I was like, oh, that was just me looking for one dopamine hit after another. And if we look at any, you know, anytime somebody starts a new relationship, um, our coworkers tend to know this because they're like, oh, you know, whoever is not going to get any work done this week because they're like constantly dazing off into the future, you know, thinking about when they're going to see their mysterious other next and recovering from the times when they just spent with them or anticipating when they're going to get that next text. That's that's really not very different from um, anticipating drug use, recovering from drug use, spending excessive time, you know, um, preparing to use, et cetera, et cetera. You can kind of check off most of the criteria when somebody's right in the throes of an early infatuation. So, um, you know, an early infatuation, I think we've all <clears throat> experienced that, but in your story, um, you know, it had been years later. So what's the difference there? <laughs> I was pretty immature in college. <laughs> I think even though, you know, I developed a more uh, stable uh, love as part of that, there was still that um, that excitability, the, the um, you know, that romantic you know, infatuation piece that I wanted to keep jacking because it was so um, intoxicating. So how can we tell the difference between actually being in love with somebody or being addicted to them or that's that a, feeling? That's a really good question. I think, so it, it, there are actually some brain studies that can start to differentiate these things and I don't think we need to go into the details. Um, we actually uh, did a study with experienced meditators to show that their brain activity in the self-referential brain regions actually quieted down when they were doing a selfless type of love uh, meditation called loving kindness, uh, which uh, kind of differentiated them from people who um, were uh, early in, in romantic infatuation. So there are some brain regions that can tell the difference, but I think experientially uh, we can look to see, you know, am I trying to hold on? Am I trying to get more? Am I trying, you know, is it about me as compared to do I really care about this person where I'm looking to see, um, you know, what will benefit this person the most? You know, so if, um, you know, 
so we can really look at it from the perspective of how much am I trying to gather for myself um, versus how much is there a real connection and is it for the other or ultimately as we transcend both of those, is it ultimately for the, you know, the benefit of, of all beings, if you want to think of it that way. And, and the Greeks actually had many different names for uh, love and these different types of love themselves. So they could even differentiate it and still do. Whereas in, in English, we've got basically one word, love. But they had, you know, they've got eros, which we think of as romantic love. Um, but they also have agape, which is this, um, you know, the, the, is, is described as the love, the common love for God's love for uh, God's children and their love for him and, and from a religious standpoint, which is much more of a, a non-selfish or a non-self-referential form of love as compared to, you know, if I get a kiss, then I'm happy type of love. So could this um, be an explanation if we take our conversation about depression and then this conversation about people who end up in relationships that aren't particularly healthy for them because it's something that reinforces maybe their own depression or their own view of themselves and then they become addicted to how they're being treated or, or how that person makes them feel in some way? That is certainly a leading hypothesis and one that I've seen many, unfortunately, many times where um, people have, you know, they they go back to an abusive relationship or they find another abusive relationship and they can't figure out why they keep going to these types of relationships, uh, but they, until they learn, oh, this is the familiarity that I'm gravitating to as compared to the health quality of this relationship. Yeah, it definitely makes sense when we talk about, you know, the depression and the the rumination and how we get um, comfortable in our thoughts and our, and and so then if somebody's um, familiar, um, uh, it makes sense that some we would gravitate towards. I guess we don't completely understand ourselves, so. <laughs> well, and that's where it, the it. The good news is that there is hope for all of this. You know, this sounds like doom and gloom, like our brains are just, you know, setting us up for failure. But the truth is, if we just start to learn to how our minds work, you know, like trigger behavior reward, we learn how we can get sucked into uh, talking about ourselves. And we can even start to uh, see very, very clearly what the results are of our behaviors. We can start to bring awareness to ourselves. That actually can help us tap into that same process and transcend it in itself. Well, you talk about that in in the first chapter when you talk about um, quitting smoking and you, you, you're asking someone questions about, you know, when he's smoking, what happens when he doesn't, and, and it brings awareness to him that, maybe if he can't get a cigarette, it's not so bad, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, um, you know, just being aware, uh, I think was your point in that of, of our addiction can um, help us, you know, overcome it. Am I right? Right, there? right. And we've even done uh, clinical studies where we found uh, bringing awareness practices, you know, formally through mindfulness training. Um, we had people, we had a, a five times the quit rate of gold standard treatment. So we had five times better of quit uh, the quit rate for people who are trying to quit smoking compared to those randomized to uh, the American Lung Association's Freedom from Smoking. And we basically taught them one thing, which was to pay attention. It was, that was, it blew our minds. We were, we were blown away by that result. Hmm. We're going to talk about that um, more when we get back. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Judson Brewer. He is the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. We'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. we got the power to change the world. Is your health where you think it should be? If you're like most people, the answer is probably not. 
Where can you get the answers you need to get on the right track? The answers start on Occupy Health. Each week, host Dr. Susan Downs and her guest experts will answer your questions as well as prepare you for questions you'll want to ask your health provider. You'll want to plan for your optimal health with Occupy Health. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Addiction can affect our relationships, our families, our home, and work lives, but most importantly, ourselves. The recovery process can do wonders in the lives of people suffering from active addiction and also for those that love them. It's not just 12-step programs, but so much more. It's learning how to live life on life's terms. If you can relate to these issues or love someone who does, start with yourself. Start by tuning in to Miracles in Recovery with host Ray Lynch, Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Hope is in your corner. Do you find yourself caring for people in multiple generations? Are you exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed? Instead of spending hours searching for resources and information, Dr. Merrill and her guests will provide you with practical, everyday information and solutions to help make your life easier. Tune into Caught Between Generations, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're talking with Judson Brewer. He's the author of The Craving Mind. So, Judson, before the break, we touched on um, how you can help people overcome um, crave, uh, cravings and addictions. And so you talked about mindfulness. Can you just tell us more about um, how people can get started with that and what that means for them? Sure. So for folks that aren't familiar with mindfulness, although it seems to be more and more of a buzzword these days, uh, I think of it as, you know, paying attention, but not getting pushed or pulled by the, you know, the pleasant things that we want more of or the unpleasant things that we want less of, where we're really kind of bringing in equanimity and bringing a curiosity even and being with whatever is. So like we talked about earlier, those triggers, we don't have any control over them, but we do have some control over our reaction to them. We could habitually react or we could really with awareness or mindfully respond. So that in a nutshell is it's something that we all have the capacity for. We don't need to go out and buy some thing that's then going to make us aware, which is good. Uh, but it is kind of challenging to train our minds. So we've had to, you know, the Center for Mindfulness has really been at the heart of developing evidence-based uh, mindfulness training for close to 40 years now. And uh, my lab, even before I joined the Center for Mindfulness, um, has been developing treatments to help people um, learn mindfulness through a specific pain point. So I think of that in terms of, you know, somebody's smoking a cigarette and they want to quit smoking, that's a pain point because smoking is painful for them. Um, or, you know, if they're eating and they're, they can't stop eating and they're, they're gaining a lot of weight, that's a pain point for them. So we can actually develop pain point-based uh, methodologies that are not only scientifically sound and based on theory, but also evidence-based and uh, make these accessible to a lot of people through, ready for the irony, through their phones. <laughs> <laughs> as long as they don't have a technology addiction, that's going to work really well. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, this is context-dependent memory, and so people don't learn to smoke in my office, and so they might actually do a better job of learning to quit smoking where they learn to smoke in the first place. So they, we can actually deliver the training through animations and through videos and through progressive exercises over a course of, you know, 20, 30 days where somebody can get really solid training and 
get exercises right in that moment when they've got an urge to eat a cupcake or an urge to smoke or something like that. And we're finding, you know, we've we've developed a couple of apps now and, and have gone through a number of clinical trials. Um, so with our smoking program, for example, it's called Craving the Quit. Um, we, we've found that we can actually decouple that craving to smoking relationship. So people can have a craving and they can learn to be with that craving right in that moment and not act on it. And each time they, they don't act on it, they break that loop a little bit and they're less caught up and they're less caught up and less caught up and, and they can quit smoking. And the nice thing is people can use this anywhere in the world. Um, you know, across the world. And we have an online community that they can get peer support and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, based on that, it was interesting. A lot of people who quit smoking actually gain weight because they'll substitute eating for smoking. And we found uh, that people were actually not doing that. And that was blowing our minds. And one person said, you know, this is really just reading these scripts for your Craving to Quit app has actually helped me change my eating. And that was a big aha for us. So we developed this eating program because, of course, this is very based on this evolutionary, you know, evolutionarily conserved process of learning how to eat. So if people are co-opting that for stress eating, we can actually use the same trainings to help them break that cycle. And in the first study uh, that that was done, um, one of my colleagues at uh, or my collaborators at UCSF led this study, Ashley Mason, she found a 40% reduction in craving-related eating uh, with people just using this app. Um, the app's called Eat Right Now, as in eat correctly in the present moment. Uh, and we've had so much success with these, where people are engaging with these programs on a daily basis, benefiting, you know, and seeing all of this. Uh, we've actually just developed um, and are in the final stages of putting into production an an anxiety app uh, that's probably going to be called Unwinding Anxiety. But the idea is all of these take simple pain points, smoking, stress eating, anxiety, as a way to help people get into the door of their own minds, see how they work, and then learn awareness practices, short moments, many times throughout their day so they develop the new habit of mindfulness as compared to you know mindlessness. Uh, and the last thing I'll say here is it's really interesting because the trigger behavior reward habit loop is an, an externally driven behavior reward. So, for example, a trigger triggers me to eat a cupcake, so I have to get something outside of myself to feel better. And the reward is feeling a little bit better. If we can provide a substitute, that same trigger, say stress, triggers me to be curious and then I suddenly dive into my stress and get curious about what it feels like, that joy of letting go, of curiosity, of exploration is intrinsic. I don't need something outside of myself to feel better. And so I can unwind that uh, habit loop of stress eating or even anxiety itself simply by tapping into my own natural capacity to be curious. I'm now hacking my own reward-based learning loop to move from something you know, not helpful to something that not only is helpful, but something that's always available. So um, one of the first steps I know to quitting something um, is being ready to quit. And I mean, you talk about getting in your own way. Um, and and uh, how can somebody overcome that hurdle? Because if they're, I mean, maybe you, you don't know, or maybe you do, but, um, you know, getting ready to quit so that they can download the app and then do all that work, because that's not going to just happen, you know, like click of a button or, or that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, it's interesting. Um, we, the first piece of this is seeing very, very clearly what the reward actually is. So with smoking, for example, on the first day of the program, even if somebody's not interested in quitting, and we, we'll say, you know, I tell people, you know, if you're not interested in quitting, just go, you know, you might try this for a couple of days and see if it helps you learn a little bit about how your mind works, because that's what it does over the first couple of days. But the key here is, as part of that, you know, this is reward-based learning. It's based on rewards. If we don't see clearly what the rewards of our behaviors are, we're just going to keep doing them habitually. 
Well, when people pay attention to cigarettes, their eyes get really big because they realize that cigarettes don't actually taste that good. I've had somebody who was smoking 40 years, and she's like, I can't believe I never noticed this. <laughs> I've been smoking 40 years. How did I not notice this? When we see clearly what the result is, we become disenchanted with the behavior in the first place. So it's less of a forced march to try to help ourselves quit and more of an intrinsic, well, of course, why would I do this thing? Um, And we see the same thing with eating. When somebody really pays attention to what it's like when they mindlessly gobble down six cupcakes and they just stop for a moment and see what the result is, oh, gut bomb. That doesn't Mm -hmm. feel so good. They're less excited to do it in the future. So even the first couple of days, if somebody's not interested in changing their behavior, they might be interested in learning a little bit more about their behavior, and that's, you know, they can, they can go crazy with that. That's what the first couple of days of these programs is about, is to see really clearly, well, what do you actually get from your behaviors? And if you're not getting anything, you know, if you're not seeing anything untoward from the behaviors at all, well, then obviously, like you're pointing out, these programs aren't going to be that helpful for folks. But that's pretty rare when people really pay attention. It's pretty rare. Well, I mean, most people who want to quit smoking or are eating sugar, you know, they, especially if they just go a day or two without sugar, for example, which is a little easier than uh, smoking, but maybe not that easy. Um, When they have it again, they realize they don't feel good. And it's contributing to a lot of, um, you know, their days not going well. Um, But then I find people still, I mean, I guess this is addiction, and they still will go back to it because they're they're craving it and there's that that trigger right so that's the old habit coming back in saying oh don't you know forget about that thing where you realize that sugar makes you feel bad um that's where the constant reinforcement needs to come in so that they can develop very clear lines between behavior and result. and if as that builds and builds and builds the tipping point comes where that old habit's going to come in and they're, they're going to be like, yeah, no, I'm, you're not convincing anymore. But early on, it's, it's like, oh, come on, this is what you always do. And so we just fall back into those old habits very, very easily. Yeah, and and we've talked a lot about that. So I think um, you know we understand that's how most of us. That's how we work. That's mm-hmm. for some reason that's how, how our brains work. Yeah, yeah. Which is why this is so hard. I mean, people can look from the outside and go, "Why haven't you changed this or quit this?" And it, it's so much deeper than that. And it's just not that easy to to flick a switch and turn it off. Absolutely, I'm not saying any of this is easy, but it is simple. And it's about simply taking one step at a time. And each time we do whatever the behavior is, simply paying attention. What do I get from this? What do I get from this? That's the first step. And just, you know, gentle, constant pressure. It's like, you know, water um, eroding rocks. It doesn't erode the rocks immediately. um, But over time, with that constant flow, the rock starts eroding. And that's how habits change as well, especially deeply ingrained ones. So um, when somebody uses your app, is there um, a time frame of how long it can generally take people? That's a really good question. Uh, With our smoking app, we've had people go in, they'll quit smoking in in two weeks, and, you know, typically we recommend three weeks, and they're like, well, can I go through the rest of the program? And we say, yes, of course, keep going. (laughs) Um, But we've also had people take a long time, you know, where they'll quit and then they'll relapse, et cetera. And with the eating program, with the Eat Right Now program, uh, it's really interesting because the eating habits can be so deeply ingrained that I, w- I tend to recommend, you know, our clinical trial, we looked at three months out. Um, but sometimes in our clinic, we have this flipped classroom model where people come in on a weekly basis and they use the app during the week and then they come in to uh, talk about their progress uh, during a group format. And some people have stayed in that group six months, nine months, even a year because they keep learning more and more and more about themselves. So it really depends on the person. Yeah, and that that makes sense um, because if you really want to understand the addiction, like we said, the the deeper part of it, it, it's good to to stay in yourself and to try to learn more so that you don't relapse. Absolutely. Um, so what is, 
the outcome? I mean, obviously people are, are quitting. Um, are they finding because of they're doing this differently than other programs that there's something else that's changing as well for them? Well, it's interesting you ask that because um, in our in our Eat Right Now program, we don't even tell people to lose weight. <laughs> we're, just, <laughs> we're just helping them change their relationship to eating. And mm-hmm. what people report is, you know, that they're, um, well, lo and behold, when you change your relationship to eating, you tend to bring in fewer calories, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the other really gratifying thing for us is that people are starting to see changes in their relationships, both with themselves and with others. So with eating in particular, um, there can be such a a kind of a self-judgment and um, almost self-abuse thought pattern that happens that can start to soften and dissolve over time. Uh, People start to see their relationships with others differently because they notice where they might have had some habitual reactivity pattern in relationship to somebody else. Uh, they start to pay attention to other things that they're doing differently. You know, so this has a uh, carryover effect to you know, basically you know, a, a lot of the rest of their life because these habit learning pathways are so, you know, they're so core to who we are. Um, they apply not just to these one, you know, just the eating or just the smoking, but they apply to so many other things as well. Um, well, it, you know, that's interesting when you talk about the relationship with others, because um, I think th- when we're talking about addiction, we're talking about it interfering in our lives in some way. And uh, so, and depending on the addiction, you know, distraction addiction make us a little more alienated. Um, food definitely, you know, can, things can be different. Um, so it's, it's nice to see that that as people are doing this work, they're also changing those things so that there, I mean, I can see how they'll be less likely to relapse because the relationships are changing and they're changing and their awareness of everything is changing. Yes, hopefully a long-term sustainable change for life. Yeah. So is there, um, a, what are your apps called so people can find those? Uh, the smoking one's called Craving to Quit, and these are all like, you know, cravingtoquit.com. The eating app is called Eat Right Now, and the website's goeatrightnow.com. And uh, the forthcoming anxiety app's going to be called Unwinding Anxiety. Uh, and there's uh, most of the information for these and for my book, et cetera, and then all the research we do here at the Center for Mindfulness can be found on my completely self-referentially named website, uh, judsonbrewer.com. <laughs> but the, um, the apps, you know, you can certainly find those via the, their own websites. Oh, perfect. Well, let me know when you make an app for uh, technology addiction. (laughs) (laughs) I will, definitely. And uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great show. Thank you. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 